to the fortnightly insights discussion and podcast brought to you by the Institute of International European Affairs and hosted by me, Dan O'Brien. As usual, today's event is live exclusively for IIEA members, but a shorter podcast version will be available to all on the Institute's website in the coming days. Today, that guest is Stefan Gerlach, who will be known personally to some of you from his time as Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland in the first half of the last decade. Over the course of the next 45 minutes, we will discuss the current state of the European economy, the challenges facing policymakers and central bankers in particular, some of the longer term drivers of the continent's economic growth, and in conclusion, some of Stefan's thoughts on the Irish economy since he left the country in 2015. By way of more formal introduction, Stefan is currently Chief Economist at EFG Bank Zurich, and prior to that he held a range of senior positions, including as Head of Secretariat to the Committee on the Global Financial System at the Bank for International Settlements, and as Executive Director of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. Stefan, you are most welcome to IIEA's Insights. Thank you for having me. Great. Look, let's kick off with, with the current state of the European economy and indeed the Irish economy. Most of the indicators, consumer confidence to business investment and from international trade to inter industrial production, are not showing the sort of slide into recession that looked all too plausible just months ago. Indeed, resilience in the face of multiple headwinds has been the main economic takeaway from the performance in 2020, 2022 and into this year, in my view. Do, do you share that view? Are you more optimistic or more pessimistic? I think it's quite true that we've all been surprised by how well economists have been doing in the last six months. Let's look at the U.S. economy and the U.S. Uh, labor market report that just came last week. It's the same story in, in Europe. Uh, we have the lowest unemployment rate, I think, certainly since the ECB was created. So it, it's true. Uh, Europe is, is, doing, is doing well. It's still doing well, perhaps I should say. And in, in terms of the risks, certainly in, in, in my professional career, I never remembered a time when the upside and downside risks were, were as great. Um, I found last year to be a really confusing time and difficult time to make any sort of predictions or forecasts about, about the, the economy in, 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 the, in the entire Western world, in, in, in fact. How do you now assess that balance of risks between further inflation? Do you think the inflation scare that it will after all turn out to be transitory or relatively transitory um and on the downside risk you know there are there are other headwinds that are that are still out there um do you think there is still a recession a risk of recession for, for europe well i mean last year uh, things went wrong we had this surge in inflation and that was due to an entirely unexpected uh, largely due to an entirely unexpected event the russian invasion of the Ukraine. And I think that's a, something that we should have in mind. If there's another bad shock happening this year, pushing up oil prices, that, then of course, we're going to see more inflation. Um, but if you, in, barring that outcome, I think, I think there are, we have very good reasons to believe that inflation is on its way down. I think the real important question there is how fast that sort of process will uh, play itself out and whether it's going to require more or lead to perhaps I should say more tightening of monetary policy uh, across across the world uh, as you as you may know the, the Bank of Sweden the Riksbank tightened monetary policy today by 50 basis points so anyway uh, I think with inflation that's a, uh, it seems things look good but you could have another shock 
I think the issue of recession is, uh, is uh, it's too early to tell, I'm afraid. So the ECB has raised interest rates by 300 basis points in, in, in eight months. And that is a pretty serious uh, tightening of monetary policy, a pretty serious, I guess, an unprecedented tightening of monetary policy um, in Europe. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates by more than 400 basis points in, in about the, the same, uh, in the, in the same time span. And it has gone faster than what it typically uh, does in the US. If you look uh, through past episodes of monetary tightening and sort of the rule of thumb is, I think, 300 basis points over 15 months or 20 basis points a month. Uh, so both these central banks have gone much, much faster than they have in the past. And we know a tightening of monetary policy, it takes quite some time to play itself out. It historically it sort of works, uh, you know, in a very obvious ways. Mortgage interest rates go up, and in some countries, for instance, in Germany, you tend to have mainly fixed rate lending, so it's only the new borrowers affected. In other countries, such as Ireland, uh, many people have a, have a floating rate loan, and they so you have the whole stock of mortgages impacted immediately. Then, you know, with higher, higher interest rates, higher mortgage costs, this starts to bite into households' budgets and so, and so on. And, you know, things may be fine for a while, but if the unemployment rate then starts to pick up, um, you know, this, this, uh, things start to look worse. Well, we certainly we know this, how this place itself, this dynamic is well known to an Irish audience. So I think it's too early to say what's going to happen in Europe. I must admit that I am quite concerned uh, that, that this rapid tightening of monetary policy uh, could well trigger a recession. Um, it could, and be, it's too early to, uh, to tell. I suspect the ECB started to raise rates in, in July. The Fed started to raise rates uh, last March and went very slow and then started to move in June. I think the second half of the, of the year is when we'll see what, what actually happens. But uh, I'm a little bit worried, I must say. And on, you know, the, the traditional view of economists has been that, you know, the effect of an interest rate increase takes an effect over a year or two years. Yeah. Some people have been maybe raising the question that structural changes in the economy have changed that. Some people say because of higher levels of debt, it could actually be more sensitive. The, it could kick in more quickly and the economy could be more sensitive. I've also heard people make the contrary argument and I can't quite remember the logic to it. It doesn't make much sense to me, but do you think that to some extent, even with this, it's a long time, as you say, on preset, we haven't had, it's on precedent since we've had such a hike in rates. Is it possible that we, 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 we are either overestimating or underestimating the impact uh, that this, uh, these rate hikes are going to have on the real economy. I think there there's every chance that we're underestimating that impact. When mortgage rate goes out, you know, think of a, of a of a household. They have an income coming in every year. They pay off the mortgage. Suddenly, the mortgage bill is a bit larger. Um, you know, it's thirty percent higher or something like that. And you know, this they don't adjust. They don't go into bankruptcy immediately. They don't adjust immediately. But over time, they have have less disposable. Uh, funds that tends to slow consumption. Uh, you you know it sort of works its way through the economy. Uh, you 
know, very slowly. It's quite possible that the, uh, this impact on tighter monetary policy on the economy is, is faster now than in the past. One argument for that is that financial markets are sort of more forward-looking now than they were in the past. Um, th that's possible. So perhaps uh, the peak effect will not be felt after 12 months. It will be felt after 10 months, if you like. Uh, certainly, we haven't seen the peak effect yet. And just to say it again, this is just a massive monster-tightening uh, that we are seeing. You, you mentioned Sweden earlier, and obviously you have a particularly close insight into Sweden. I, I understand house prices are falling in Sweden, but the tightening yes. continues. Yes. So we see in the UK, house prices are falling, tightening yes. continues. There, there is a very different, within the Eurozone in particular, obviously Sweden and the UK, not in the Eurozone, but within the Eurozone, levels of household debt vary greatly. You know, the Netherlands and, and, and very high levels of household debt, other, right. uh, particularly Central and Eastern European countries, are very low levels. Do, yeah. do you think that will be a major factor? And can you see some of the some of the uh, housing markets crashing? And I suppose people here will particularly want to know if you see any prospect of the Irish housing market being vulnerable uh, to, to this uh, tightening cycle? Um, I mean, I think the Irish housing market is structurally very, very vulnerable. If you just look at the way the market sort of functions and so on, I think, I mean, uh, Ireland perhaps will be the canary in the coal mine in many ways. There's certainly very large differences in housing markets across the euro area. And that reflects a number of factors. Uh, for instance, it, it, it reflects things like pension systems, for instance. Uh, in, in the Netherlands, the pension system is very well worked out and people actually borrow against the future pensions. And that's one way. You have, if you have to save a lot in your pension, you have less money around, so you can actually borrow more, if you like. So it, uh, factors like that are important. In Eastern Europe, uh, in countries with relatively poorly developed financial markets, historically, the way you, you saved the wealth uh, was by having housing, like the Cyprus or, 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 uh, and so on. And Eastern European countries, they didn't have much, much borrowing going on until, uh, until 1990. So they sort of lag behind from that perspective. So there are a myriad of systems across Europe. Um, and uh, some markets are more, are more um, exposed, I think, to a tightening of monetary policy than others. And I, I think, regrettably, I think Ireland is probably one of the countries that will be more exposed. And that's despite a big decline in, in household debt since the over the past fifteen years. You, you still feel that the that there is a vulnerability. Yeah, we know that we know that house, households have problems paying their debt, irrespective of how high it is. Essentially, there are two factors that play a role. One is idiosyncratic, basically divorce is a big driver of, of bankruptcy or, or problems uh, paying uh, servicing mortgages in any country, and that's of course you know. Um, not systematic, if you like, and the other big driver is unemployment. When people become unemployed, then they have problems servicing their mortgages for good for good reasons. Um, so, if you have a uh, if you have an economy that's given to boom boom bust cycles where people have borrowed a lot, where there's a lot of floating rate lending, I think risks are risks are are, are high. Uh, also, uh, house ownership, household sort of ownership of their housing is very high in Ireland. Well, it has come down. But historically, it's been quite high, and that is also something which historically has been associated with a with a more a greater sensitivity to uh, to shocks.
Um, we'll, we'll come to you. You mentioned well, Ireland's divorce rate is still relatively low, and thankfully, the unemployment <laughs> rate is, is still low. Um, yes. And we'll come back to the labour market maybe later on, and and the really, you know astonishing forecasts that most people have for the labour market. We, it seems that you know they're expecting very low. Um, rates of economic growth, if not minor contractions this year, but with hardly any change in the unemployment rate in most countries. But as I yeah. say, we'll, we'll come back to the, the labor market maybe later in the discussion. But let's stick with the let's stick with central banking for the for the moment of the particular challenges central bankers uh, are, are facing as they as they raise interest rates. The fiscal side of the, the macro piece, how is your analysis of how central bankers are looking at what governments are doing in terms of the overall amount of macro stimulus or, or, or non-stimulus that's going on. Um, how, how is that feeding into how particularly the ECB is looking at uh, its, its interest rate hikes? So I think this is, uh, I mean, this is something that uh, they haven't been explicit uh, about. I think there is a concern that the tightening monetary policy very rapidly would put a lot of pressure on some countries and particularly Italy. Perhaps the greater issue there is what uh, quantitative tightening or the ECB shrinking its balance sheet, how that will sort of play itself out. That may be the bigger, the bigger issue. Uh, but I, I, plainly, there, the, the uh, Italian public debt um, must be uh, something that no one politely talks about, if, if you like, but still mattering hugely. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's the elephant in the room in, in many ways. Indeed, and certainly I, I would very much share share that view, uh, despite being uh, somebody who's lived in Italy, speaks the language and, and loves the country, uh, deeply fearful about what, uh, about its future and the scale of its debt and its capacity to grow its way out of that. And it's certainly something that keeps, even before the pandemic, was, was one of the things that kept people awake at night in policymaking circles. Uh, so on that, subject in terms of how the quantitative easing particularly during the pandemic is unwound how big do you see the risks for that countries like italy became hugely dependent on bond purchases by the central bank uh, there is clearly a desire with quantitative tightening to to roll that back um, how, how achievable is that over what sort of time frame or are we just kind of stuck with warehousing government debt, particularly for weaker countries, for fear of triggering a crisis? So I think that the ECB will charge ahead and shrink its balance sheets. Uh, and uh, the issue it really is what happened as, it's, as it sort of starts doing that and continues doing that. To me, when, when things go wrong in life, um, also in terms of economics, it, it tends to be a number of things that sort of sort of act together unexpectedly. So for instance, you know, just think as to have a thought experiment here, the ECB starts to um, shrink the balance sheet that puts pressure on Italian bond yields. It raises uh, policy interest rates that puts more pressure on Italian bond yields. And then something happened, I don't know what it is, you have a bank in Italy that goes belly up or something happens, you have a, a big recession developing in, in Italy. And that's the situation when, when people who hold Italian public debt will say, whoops, perhaps they won't be able to service this debt. 
uh, you know, rates are high and now they have a big recession and that's going to mean they're going to borrow a lot in the near term. And, you know, perhaps this won't work. Um, I mean, so, so it's sort of this sort of uh, constellation of forces, a couple of things that go wrong. Um, and, you know, if those things don't happen, and I think Italy will do fine, just higher interest rates on its own, I don't think would be necessarily a big issue. QT on its own would not be necessarily a big issue. But it's sort of the QT and perhaps something else happening at the same time, a confidence crisis, for instance. You can imagine Italian government falling. It has some, you know, it, that happens quite often in Italy. You can imagine sort of internal political tensions, something like that, or perhaps, I don't know, the, the, the war in Ukraine expands in some way and so on and so forth. So it's precisely this. The Italy is exposed, and if something else happens, then things could set off very, very quickly. It's um, and that we can't really guard against that. It's uh, it, it's like driving above the speed limit. You know, you the, the risk that you'll have an accident just rises very quickly. You may do fine, but the risk that you have an accident so simply rises commensurately. So, as somebody who was in central banking during much of the eurozone crisis do you have any sense looking at it now that central bankers just won't allow it to happen that if there are a number of things that come together that cause an italian crisis that it looks as though italy is going greek mm. would your assumption I, I kind of this is the assumption that i've come to over time that none of the policymakers the people around the table are actually going to allow the whole thing to collapse on their watch and if it means expanding the balance sheet again, buying up Italian government debt, whatever way they'll make up to do it, they will do it on the basis that they won't want to be the people that cause Italy to go Greek and potentially causing the entire Eurozone to come down. So the can will be kicked down the road in some way and the balance sheet will be used again. Or am I wrong? On so I think you're quite right about that. And there's, there are two things here, which I think are very, very important to have in mind. And this often do not come up in the discussions. You have to remember that the people uh, in the Euro system, not only the governors of the national central banks and the senior people in the ECB, but large, a large number of people across the Euro systems have spent their professional lives working on a single currency in Europe. We had the Werner plan uh, going back to 50 years or so. Uh, and, you know, there, there have been meetings at the BIS in Basel up until 1999, and we had the European Monetary Institute, and we had the, uh, we had the ECB and so on. So people have spent their prof entire professional careers um, sort of trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do this? And then we have this sort of core of European central bankers that are, you know, very committed to the project and to each other. They know each other very well for a very, very long time. This is their life's work. And they are not likely to say, well, yes, let's just give up on it. Uh, this is what they have spent um, their life, um, you know, doing. Um, if you go back to the 1970s and look at who, were, who wrote about these things, uh, well, who were the academic authors about uh, all these uh, all these articles and and so on? You see what happened to them afterwards. Well, they're essentially still in the game, or they have recently retired. So there's a, there's a lifetime career spent focusing on how do we 
set up a European Central Bank? How do we manage monetary policy within the European Union? And there is an enormous personal commitment among these people. And many commentators, in the, certainly in the, U, in the US in particular, but also in the UK, they, are not, they haven't realized this because they really weren't part of this, of this community. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is more formal. As you know, uh, the, uh, the task of the ECB is to achieve price stability. And, and as long as that is not under threat, it is to support, quote, I think the general economic policies of the European Union, end quote. Now, the Maastricht treaties, uh, or the, the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union, says that the euro is the currency of Europe. Um, so plainly the maintenance of the euro as the currency in Europe is a general economic policy of the European community or the European, or the European Union. So central banks think has, has, has a rock solid legal uh, support to do whatever it takes provided that it's not inflationary to support and to maintain the euro. And of course, luckily, financial prices are rarely inflationary. They tend to lead to deflation, is, if anything, as we have seen. Uh, so I think there, we have this cast of people who, who have this lifetime shared objective and they have solid legal um, support for taking action to maintain the euro. And I think uh, you're quite right. I mean, I always, for me, the issue is never will the euro survive but rather what will the ECB and the European Union more generally do to ensure that it survives given the pressures of today uh, or of tomorrow? So it's a question of what will they have to do, not whether they will do it. That's how I think about it. Okay, so that, that I, I suppose the governing council of the ECB is 25, has it gone up to 26 people now? 26 so now, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's big um, by, any, by any standard. Um, as you mentioned, there, there, there is a, commit, a sort of an ideological commitment to European integration on the part of many people involved in European policymaking at all levels. Uh, a couple of questions on that. Do, do you think that impairs the judgment of European monetary policymakers? Are, are they, does that ideological commitment to integration interfere with pure central banking policy in terms of containing inflation? No. Um, let me yeah. interrupt you there and say no. It it uh, that's their task, right? That's how the uh, that that's the, the legal mandate of the ECB. Okay, and and then a, a sort of follow up to that question: Given the twenty six people involved and the different countries and cultures and political cultures they come from, you know, do you see a difference in in behaviors um, and and viewpoints on on these issues in terms of? You know, inflation in terms of quantitative easing, um, north-south, um, other, you know, what, what divides the hawks and the doves? Yeah, so... Um, What's on, on the, the internal workings of the ECB as you read them? So I think they all have the same objective, because again, the objective is, is, is essentially hardwired, that is price stability. And secondly, price stability has now been spelled out by the ECB as, as 2%. This is what they are, this is what they're aiming for. I think if there are differences across people, I think there are maybe in, in two ways. First of all, you know, in their in their risk assessments, how likely is this actually to lead to inflation being too high or too low? People there can have very different views. 
and so we all share the we all share the two uh, percent target. But some people feel perhaps we don't need to raise interest rates again because we're going to achieve two percent. And others feel we certainly need to raise rates because otherwise we don't we will not feel, uh, achieve two percent. So I think sort of the how much is necessary. I think there. Then there, then there are, I mean, there there are the differences, and I think there are also differences that come from the fact that you know, unavoidably, if you're a, if you're a, uh, let's say a German, uh, you know, if you're policymakers, your sort of intellectual references will come from German economic political debate, uh, uh, German economic and monetary history, and so on. And I think this is uh, other other policymakers coming from other countries would have other sets of references. So that also automatically, I think, uh, I think uh, does impact on on, on people's uh, thinking. But the, the objectives are shared. It's not that they have different uh, sort of targets for inflation. Uh, this they may have different views about sort of what what's required to achieve them. Well, I, exactly. So you know, as somebody clearly plugged into the, the German-speaking world there in Zurich. Um, one, one of the things that slightly surprises me is the German public and political reaction to inflation. Like, let's recall that inflation in Germany now is higher than it, than it has been, even during the 70s and 80s. You have to go back to the immediate post-war period to have yeah. inflation to 10%. The Germans didn't have it as bad in, in, from yeah. an inflationary perspective, even during the oil crisis of the 70s. And our view has always been that the Germans are particularly allergic to high inflation, yet it doesn't seem to be as big a political issue as, at least as a non-German speaker looking in at the debate um, in Germany, it doesn't seem to be as big an, a, a, an issue as perhaps one might have thought. Uh, is, is, as somebody who, who clearly is better, much better plugged into the German-speaking German debate, is, is that your sense or how do you think that the view, German views on inflation have involved? So uh, I very much agree with you, and I think you know, when push comes to shove for for the population at large, you know they like to have lower inflation rather than higher inflation. But what they really don't want to have is unemployment, and unemployment in Europe is very low. It's the lowest level we you know we have, we have seen, and of course that means that uh, these concerns about inflation are not as going to be as uh, you know as biting. Uh, uh, as they would have been, as they would have been otherwise. Uh, I think there's also, um, I mean, uh, in Germany, I think that uh, there's also a sense that um, you know Germany has an uh, outwardly oriented economy. German exports and how well Germany does depends also on how the, how well the rest of the euro area is doing economically. And so I think people recognize that that a big slowdown in, in in France or in Italy or Spain and so on would not be would not be helpful for Germany. Okay. Um, in in terms of just coming back, a couple more questions on the ECB. Um, in in terms of how you rate the current leadership of the of the ECB relative to the past 25 years since it came into existence or relative to peer central banks around the world what 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 do, do you have thoughts on 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 the quality current quality of the ecb leadership so i th i mean as you know there's been a lot of concern uh, 
levied at uh, Madame Lagarde, President Lagarde, uh, whose, uh, and, and her communications have been a number of, of issues there. One was the example uh, when she, uh, I think in 2020 or 2021, when she said the ECB is not out there to close Italian spreads. And that lasted a couple of hours until the ECB denied that uh, and, and that she had men intended to say anything like that. And now more recently, she has said that the ECB is, uh, is data driven. They are foregoing forward guidance, but we will raise interest rates by 50 basis points a couple of times. I mean, this is a contradiction in terms. Um, so I think there's been a lot of commentary. I've, I was at an event in London talking to, uh, to people in, in the markets, and I was just astonished by how upset uh, uh, they, they were. I thought Madame Lagarde was, would be a, an excellent president. I was very much in favor of her appointment. And if you look back historically, plainly the period during the financial crisis, um, there were lots of tensions among the members of the governing council, but in particular, as the newspaper were reporting between President Weidmann and, and a few others and, and, and President Draghi. And um, that was sort of unavoidable, I, I think, but it was important for the ECB to sort of go beyond that. And as we were sort of getting out of that crisis, I felt that the ECB needed uh, a person of standing, of stature, uh, and there had been tensions, someone who could really manage the governing council well. And there had also been tensions with governments, uh, you remember, and, and, and courts. You remember the, the cases with, uh, with the German Constitutional Court. So I thought someone, uh, a sort of a senior person uh, who were able to deal with politicians uh, who, uh, you know, who could get the governing council to cooperate uh, would, be, would be good. And I thought, uh, Madame Lagarde struck me as just an ideal candidate. And in addition, I think this is also important. I've, I felt you cannot just always appoint men to this position. Half of the ECB staff is, are women. And you know, for every time that someone is appointed, there's another man. I think this is, a, uh, this is not really acceptable. So I felt that hey, we have a highly qualified woman uh, for the job, someone who has been a minister of finance in a major European economy, uh, someone who's been running the IMF and also someone who's been the managing partner of a big U.S. corporate law firm and it must be very much uh, uh, sort of uh, aware of how to deal with, with clashing egos and so on and so forth. I thought she was an excellent candidate and I, I did recognize that there was, you know, she is not a Montreux policymaker by, by uh, background and I felt that, you know, you don't always need that. I thought that would only become important, I thought, if we had another financial crisis. But, you know, we've we just, we just left the financial crisis. It strikes me as unlikely that that would be a, a criterion. But I think, in fact, you know, we've had, we had, we had uh, COVID and the war in, in Ukraine. And, you know, when you have a crisis like that, it, it's very difficult to be in charge of the show because you ask your advisors, what should we do? And in a situation like that, there's so much uncertainty. No one really knows what's going on. The data is lagging behind by a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Different advisors will tell you different things. You should do A. No, no, you should do B. And then I think the president of these B sort of has to lead from the front, sort of think out, sort of the, take sort of intellectual view. We should do this. This is what President Draghi did, and he did it very well. 
And I, I think Madame Lagarde is, uh, is sort of, uh, uh, it's, it's difficult for her and she tends to lead from the back. And this has not been, uh, this has not, go, has not gone as well as I thought it would or as I had hoped for. So there is, has been a lot of, of, of critique, I think, and I can see where it's coming from. So that, that raises a question that, you know, and, and you raised particularly the, it was, it was in March 2020, I remember extremely well when she made that comment about the not being in the business of uh, yield compression. And uh, from recollection, it went on longer than a few hours before it, it, it corrected because there was a full-scale panic in the bond market as, as, as yes. COVID broke out. So, yes. you know, given the nature of financial fragilities, the, the huge scale of central banking, you know, how it's changed over 25 years. It used to be a very boring technocratic job. Now it's 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 much more, uh, particularly around the, the, the quantitative easing use of balance sheet, it's a much more complicated, bigger, more political job. But ultimately, does, does that suggest that you need a monetary policy, a monetary economist specialist as the very basis to run a central bank these days? And other things are the things you mentioned are add-ons, but at basis, you need somebody who fundamentally understands uh, monetary policy and how markets function and how markets interact with, with signals from central banks. So I don't think you sort of, every governor has to be a, a, monetary, uh, a monetary economist by, uh, by, by, uh, by training or by, by profession, that's not necessary. But in a financial crisis, of course, it is important with someone who really understands exactly what's going on and what the issues are and how this may play itself out. I mean, that's just very, very helpful. And uh, uh, so this has really put a premium, this crisis has put a premium, I think, on, on understanding the sort of function in the dynamics of markets and, and, and so on. Um, I mean, as you suggested there, the advent of QE and, and central banks suddenly having these very large bond portfolios uh, that generates profits and can generate very large losses as well, I think has led people uh, across the world to sort of think perhaps we should have someone with a little bit more of a uh, sensitive political ear, uh, more sensitive uh, a political antennas perhaps uh, run the show. And I mean, you know, uh, Madame Lagarde is a former minister of uh, finance. Uh, Vice President de Guindos is a former uh, economics minister. I mean, it, it may not just be, a, you know, luck or lack thereof that we have two non-economists uh, non, uh, non running the ECB. Um, so I, I, I do think that this large balance sheets actually has shifted governments thinking a little bit about who, who would be the right person to run a, a central bank. And perhaps that, that shift hasn't really gone in the right direction. And we were, we're, we're, we're not far off the end and we're still on, on the monetary side. But one final question I'd, I'd like to put to you on, on um, how the ECB works, and that's the, the balance of power between big countries and small countries. Um, oh. Any, any thoughts on how that is, how it's changed, what role smaller countries, and purely ask from a particular Irish yeah. I can't sort of say how it has changed, but of course, you know, a smaller country can punch above its weight in the governing council. 
if you have a governor who is uh, who is uh, very persuasive and very knowledgeable about very and very persuasive i think i can say that i mean i was the deputy governor when patrick honan was uh, was governor and i think it was very clear that there were a number of people he punched above his weight during the financial crisis because he always had good clear answers when people ask questions and they ask some detailed questions and and the governor gives an immediate detailed answer and you know a pedagogic answer so that people understand and understand ireland's position and and you know can accurately and quickly convey what the issues are and so on in a in a, in that situation of course uh, you know, a, a governor from from a, from a country in difficulties sort of is the person within ECB and the governing council who can provide answers immediately and spell out what's going on. And there, I think Ireland was very well served by having someone who was able to do that very well. Uh, I mean, I was struck throughout the euro area country a crisis that Ireland actually was, you know, the, was seen very positively by people. There was a big crisis, of course, but uh, there were a lot of goodwill towards Ireland. Uh, and, uh, you know, to, to have someone who, who can play that role in that way was, was immensely, immeasurably helpful, it was very, very helpful indeed. So I do think you can punch above your weight and it depends on you know, who, who is there and, and their skills and their, you know, how diplomatic they are and, and so on and so forth. It's it's a challenging job. I don't think anyone has all the skills to be uh, a no. central governor or leader. Um, I was going to leave it to the end, but since since you you mentioned uh, the the Irish situation and your uh, and your experience, I know that you certainly don't spend every day poring over Irish economic data, given your current role. But any any thoughts on the performance of the Irish economy since you left back in twenty fifteen? Um, yeah, well, so, I, I, so the Irish economy is, is is doing is doing well. I mean, it's it's growing. May not grow so much this year, but as last year, uh, and so on. But it's growing. It's doing. It's doing fine. Unemployment rates are very low. It's come down, you know, a lot over the last since the crisis struck and so on. So I don't think there is sort of like a business cycle concern so much in the case of Ireland. Of course, if we do have a recession in the rest of the world. Ireland, which is with, with its sort of externally oriented economy, will also be hit unavoidably. But to my mind, I think the concerns that I have with Ireland are more sort of structural. Um, for instance, a large part of the government tax revenues now seem to be coming uh, from the pharmaceutical sector, seems to be coming from, from uh, you know, from the, uh, you know, information technology IT sector, I don't know what the right term there is. And you always ask yourself, or you always worry, well, if you have a downturn, will tax revenue just evaporate or not? Uh, that is something that I think, yeah. I mean, clearly that, was, that happened during the uh, financial crisis where so much of income was, uh, came indirectly and directly from the property sector. So when that, uh, when that sort of ground to a halt, tax revenues crashed and the consequence where well, we all know all too well what they were for the government's fiscal position. So I'm sort of worried about, the, about that. Is the economy sort of too dependent on, on those two sectors? I think the property market still, to me, is, is, is a little bit worrisome. And there are, there are sort of some structural issues there as well, which I, I think are, are, are important. It always struck me when I was in Ireland, the people, you know, they bought property to have, uh, you know, as their pension. 
So if you have a property market where, where you know, it's, it's driven by a bad pension system, the solution is probably to fix the pension system. Uh, uh, and similarly, some of the problems in the property market came from the fact that, that people that were, were renting property, uh, they lacked sort of legal protections in many ways. And therefore it was not possible for you to live long-term in rental property. And that of course pushed people into buying houses that perhaps people that perhaps weren't able to assume the risks that buying a house necessarily would entail. So I think there are structural problems in the Irish economy. And when things are good, you don't think of them, but you just worry what would happen if you have a downturn, will they exacerbate the downturn? Um, so that leads me on to, as time is running short, you, you, the farm and tech, as you absolutely rightly say, the, the Irish economy is very, these are absolute pillars. These are the two engines, if you will, uh, to some extent of the Irish economy. A lot of talk about deglobalization, about deindustrialization in Europe, about protectionism, about, um, you know, Europeans are, are, are having panic attacks about what the Americans are doing in terms of subsidies. And we see it today at the, at the council meeting, this is on the agenda. Is it possible that not just a cyclical downturn in, in it causes these these industries to be badly affected, but a decoupling or even a, a slowing of the, the a weakening of the bonds across the Atlantic could could affect these industries? And I'm asking this not just from an Irish perspective, but just more generally on this issue of deglobalization, deindustrialization. Um, all of these 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 trends that are getting a lot of discussion. So, yeah, so I think it perhaps a little bit. Uh, these concerns are a little, perhaps a little overdone. I mean, we will see some deglobalization. Companies will will make sure that their supply chains are more resilient than they were in the past. But they're not going to take all the production home. Uh, they may have. Uh, they may. They may. You know, buy. I don't know. Goods. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, plastic buttons for for you know for your uh, electric windows in the car, not by them yes from from one factory in Guangdong province, but have five suppliers across the world. So so there will be changes, but I think those are a little bit overdone. Perhaps in this sort of security area, there will be greater changes. But all in all, I suspect that we will still have globalization. Yes, won't be as as extreme as in as in the past. You know. Uh, Manufacturing and so on. Well, manufacturing is a shrinking sector in most economies as they grow wealthier. I mean, the service sector becomes much more important. So I think, you know, relative to what we see automatically, I'm not sure that this will be, this will be um, big things. Um, I mean, the American Inflation Reduction Act, I see that as sort of, a, and this is, will be a start for a long series of long <laughs> negotiations about how to make sure that this sort of pans out uh, properly. Plainly, something needs to be done. It needs to be a European response. But I think it would be a little bit extreme to say, you know, this is the end of, uh, this is the end of everything. Uh, it, it's a challenge, but it will be you know, dealt with. And as a matter of interest in, in, in Switzerland, this debate about subsidies, obviously Switzerland's not in, in, in an EU member state, but is this, you know, Switzerland has some extremely strong companies for the size of its economy. Um, has this debate uh, come about in amongst policymakers in Switzerland? Not sort of in, you know, in, 
in any sort of major way, I think. I think for Switzerland, the big issues are, of course, the relationship with the European Union. It's our biggest trading partner. We're surrounded by the European Union, and, and that's so managing that is is the big issue. But this uh, this uh, this uh, RA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and so on, it's not it's not yet the big uh, a big issue. And I guess partially because uh, here certainly they will wonder and and. and they would wait to see what the response in Brussels would be. And a very final one, coming back to the labour market. Personally, I have been amazed how the labour market has come through, in most countries, the pandemic. Um, I certainly would have thought when, you know, the initial months that job destruction would have been longer lasting. Um, but it really has been remarkable. And as you pointed out, European unemployment now is at its lowest on record since the Eurozone was established 25 years ago, almost. Um, how optimistic are you about the near-term outlook even if we do have a downturn do you think something has happened in the european labor market to make it better better functioning more flexible so labor markets tend to lag the general business cycle uh, and you know labor markets look great until they suddenly don't mm. uh, and I, and so i am worried depending on the severity of, of any downturn what what will happen i suspect that unemployment rates will move up a little bit to some extent, people may say that's a good thing because that reduces wage pressures and makes it easier to keep inflation or to push inflation back to to two percent. But but I think there is a risk. There is a small, to my mind, there is a small risk that we will see a deep recession developing, and and on its own, I think tighter monetary policy is unlikely to do it. It's likely to slow the economy, perhaps generate a recession, but not a deep recession. But if we have something else happening. Um, you know, then then things could go, uh, then things could turn badly. Uh. And, and certainly the, the 2020s have given us more than our fair share of unexpected shocks. We've hit the 45 minute mark. Uh, Stefan, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. And I wish you. Uh, you and all our participants a good afternoon. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.